Live and in color from the NBC News Radio Broadcasting Studios of KCAA, 1050 AM, 102.3 FM, and 106.5 FM, located in beautiful Southern California and in parallel from the Turfs Up Radio Studio in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Thanks for tuning in to the Water Zone Show this evening. Well, good afternoon, and we welcome to the Water Zone. Hope everybody's having a great day. I'm Rob Starr, along with our great host, Mr. Chris Davey. And Chris, how are you doing out there in California land? Fantastic. California land is doing all, doing all right as well. Finally drying out. There's this big yellow ball in the sky. We're all trying to figure out what it is, Rob. <laughs> what color is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's yellow, sometimes uh-huh. orange in the, when it's been low on the horizon, but it's there. What uh-huh. is that? I like, I like when it comes up in the morning or it goes down and it's red. Yes, absolutely, yeah. So we're getting, we're getting a bit of a chance to uh, to dry out. I'm getting a chance to shovel part of my front yard, which is now <laughs> in my oh, side. Are you talking here. about the weather drying up or are you drying up? <clears throat> Both, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I heard you guys got tons tons of wetness there in the last weekend and such. We, we got very little here uh, where I am. But further north from here in Scottsdale, and uh, Scottsdale in uh, um, by the Grand Canyon and Flagstaff and and uh, some other places, they got lots of snow, lots of hail. So it was pretty interesting. So anything new out out there, Chris? No, actually, uh, just just trying to get a wrap up on everything for today's show, right? And I know somebody. We both know somebody who can give us the skinny, the inside slope, right? All of the good stuff. Bring her the, the on. Do- the news lady herself, the purveyor of Maven's Notebook, Miss Chris Austin. Chris, welcome. Hey, how you doing, everybody? We be good. How was your last week? Hey, you know, not too bad. We finally we saw the last of the storms blow through overnight, uh, and it's now nice blue skies here, uh, looking looking good. We have some some more water in the reservoirs, so. Uh, the landscape got the good watering, and there's snow in the mountains. So um, I think it's, we're doing about as good as we could be doing up here. All but you got a but, but you got a real oxymoron going on down there. You got <laughs> you got a drought, and you got floods. <laughs> yeah, well, that's you know that's uh, California for you, you know. It's interesting, it's a radio show, so I guess I can't show the listeners, but, you know, there's a map that they show in presentations, a map of the United States, and it it has all these colored dots all over it, and the colored dots represent uh, the standard deviation from average precipitation, or how much precipitation varies year to year all across the nation. And uh, when you get back east and in the Midwest, uh, it it doesn't vary very much. They're they're lighter colors, you know, meaning that you know people in the Northeast generally get within a few inches about the same amount of rain or snow each each season. Um, and then as you move further west, you get out to the West Coast, it gets a little more colorful up in the Pacific Northwest. But when you move down to southern or down to California, it's all like crazy. Uh, the the most variation 
by far of any place in the United States, and it's all down there in the corner. And it's even uh, bigger for Southern California, meaning that they can have deluges and they can have nothing. Um, and that's sort of what we deal with here in California, and that's what makes water management so hard. You have to be prepared for big floods, uh, like we saw these last few weeks, and you have to be also prepared for long droughts, uh, long, deep, drought, dry droughts. Uh, and it, it's just a crapshoot each year uh, what we're going to get. Uh, so, yeah, and this is the year when we have drought and flood in the same year. <laughs> and it, it's happened before. It will probably happen again. Yeah. Polar objectives, to say the least, right? But for our listeners, Chris, I'll tell them, you know, there's a there's a place you can go and look at all of these graphs, and it's on your website, right? You've got a bunch of stuff. I don't know if you have actually, do you actually have the U.S. drought monitor on there that University of Nebraska does? I do on my page of conditions, which you okay. can get off the resource tab on my website. I just recently updated it, um, and the drought monitor is on there. And the drought monitor is one measure, yeah. Um, the you know the drought monitor it it sort of measuring you know meteorology meteorological I'm sorry I messed that up uh, <laughs> you know that word drought um you know the what what the precipitation is coming from the sky but that doesn't as you know in California that doesn't tell you the whole story because it's not you know it's how much we have in our reservoirs that makes the bigger difference, uh, you know, not necessarily, uh, you know, like, like we could, the drought monitor, monitor could say we're out of drought, but if we don't have a lot of water in our reservoirs, uh, we're, we're still going to feel the impact of not having enough water for everything we want to have water for. Yeah, so true. From what I saw on the news uh, over the last two weeks with, with all the storms and the flooding and the money that's been approved for different projects in California, I, I would assume some agency has a map that shows where the most vulnerable parts for flood are because we've seen them, not not the maps, but we've seen the, what, what's happened with the floods. Are they... Are there plans to attack those areas first? Oh, uh, you know, absolutely. The state puts together, um, well, the you know the most flood risk, the most flood prone parts of the state are in the Central Valley. Um, it's a big valley, a lot of rivers rushing down to it. There's a lot of land, a lot of cities protected by levees. But by and far, that's not uh, that's not the only place there's flood risk in in really all corners of california including southern california but uh the the biggest risk i think does lie in the central valley and they the state produces a flood plan for the central valley um and they've identified like uh several billion i don't remember the number exactly but several billion dollars of investment in the flood control system. Um, you know, the flood control in California is kind of a dicey situation. Um, back in the early 1900s, when they started dealing with the flooding that was occurring in the Sacramento Valley, uh, 
we had like farmers building their own levees and then when the the rains would come and the rivers would flood uh, the the farmers would see that these rising waters were stressing their levees so a few of them <laughs> figured out that the best way to prevent their land from be- becoming flooding is to go like uh, blow up a neighbor's levee so the the flood floods their land and not you know the farmer's land and there was a lot of that going on. I mean we're talking the early 1900s. It's the Wild West, right? Wow. So so finally you know the Fed said you know we have to do something and we need it needs to be coordinated. We can't have every farmer building their own levees and trying to maintain. We need a whole system. So that took a larger entity than just the city or even the county. And so in came the feds and the Army Control Army Corps of Engineers, and they built up the flood system. And then the state came along, and they also built levees to, you know, bolster that flood protection. So the levees that we have are a mix of federal, state, and also local agencies because you had reclamation districts that built levees and and other interests, you know, farmers that built levees for their land. So, but at least you had this coordinated system. <clears throat> and a lot of the those uh, flooding, the flood protections that were put in place were actually came from federal investment. Uh, I think in the 40s and the 50s, the federal government made large investments in California flood system. And then I'm not sure... When it came about, but I would say in the last couple of decades, uh, funding, federal funding for levies really dried up. Um, and it, the state became responsible for, uh, for its own, maintaining its own levies for the state system. You know, the, the state and the federal system are sort of combined. So, and, and who's in charge is, is a whole different conversation. So we'll just skip by that for now. But we have, so we have this patchwork of levees. And the Fed said, we're not going to do water projects anymore <clears throat> a couple decades ago. And then also um, probably a little over 10 years ago, I'm not exactly sure when, uh, we had a reorganization in state government. And... I believe I, I I think it predates Jerry Brown's governorship. Might even predate the time that that I was working on this, uh, working on water issues. But um, the state decided that certain agencies that needed to charge fees to cover their operations costs, so that it's not the general fund of the state legislature that's having to support these levies. And so, or just to support these agencies, the, the state water board is one uh, one of those agencies. They have to charge fees to cover all their licensing and permitting operations. And another one was the flood system. They said, you're going to have to figure out how to finance these flood control investments, you know, on your own. Meaning, you got to make the landowners pay problem is that flood control stuff is really very, very expensive. And the flood board has been really struggling with how to make that happen because 
there's just not a lot of money sitting around to make these very expensive investments that we need to make. So we'll have to see. Now, sometimes, you know, they put up bonds or on the ballot and, uh, you know, ballot proposition, and we voted in extra funds, and that's provided some more funding for flood control work, but it's still far short of what is needed. And what we're really missing is that federal money that helped build all those systems, but that's just not there. But we are looking at an aging levee system, uh, thousands of miles, that's thousands with an S on the end, of levees, uh, some of them not in good shape, and some of them that need to be fixed. So it's going to be difficult. It's why I think everything is getting more expensive these days. Um, not, not to throw politics into this, but I, I heard on the news that California is looking to pass, uh, at least San Francisco, a recreation. We're giving people $5 million each. And my point is, it's not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to carry the conversation about that, but, but we don't, we, doesn't the state need the money to fix all these problems first before they go off and give everybody $5 million? Well, yeah, that would be the city trying to do that, and I don't see how they would have the budget for that. But that's that's another story. Right, um, right. Yeah, you know, the state the state does need the money for, but I mean, how how are they going to collect it? I mean, that's the problem. They could start taxing uh, these owners of the levies, but all that filters down. I mean, the money's got to come out of somebody's pocket. Um, right, right. And, they they do studies. They're trying to figure out how you know, trying to figure out who they can get to participate in in bolstering levies. But um, you know, it's I I I don't know. I think we're going to have to. We're probably going to have to sit down and and find some funding for flood protection. But that's going to mean you know money from people in higher taxes or you know tax money going for that that wouldn't be going for other things. Uh, so they, they they use don't some flood control locations use uh, as as a, uh, a uh, an auxiliary way of getting rid of the water through the sewer systems and and is there not enough sewer systems or infrastructure well, for that like like that that's like, only in the, that would only be in the city yeah but, uh, in but, the but, urban but, areas but. But if you take a look at like where, where Oprah lives in Montecito and places like that, where almost every year you hear on the news that all these big movie stars and you know wealthy people are getting flooded out of the streets. So is there well, not infrastructure? Go ahead. Montecito, that that's a little that's a little different um, because they they had the big Thomas fire up there, and right. then the, what they're experiencing is debris flows from burn scars. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think that's sort of a mountain community. It's not really a levee-protected community. Like uh, Sacramento, for instance, you know, two major rivers uh, join in, in you know, west side of Sacramento. They right. have a lot of flood control uh, issues. But now, okay, that that's an urban environment. And, and in that urban area of a couple million people, I think, that live in... Sacramento, one million, I think. Um, you know, they actually have a bit of an income base and dollars to protect 
you know, that city with higher flood protection. But it's really when you get out into the middle of the Central Valley, into the middle of the Sacramento Valley, there's a lot of little towns around and, uh, you know, and miles and miles of levees that need to be fortified. Uh, so, and not a lot of tax base out there to pay for it. So, it's, I mean, it's a real problem. Well, yeah, I know it's, you know, we, not just us been talking about it, but I mean, for, for years and years, generations, they're, they're still talking about what are they going to do to, you know, get, get, get fixing up these infrastructures that we have. It could be a hundred years old or more. Um, yes, it takes money. And, and, and I worry about that. I mean, I'm, I'm not in California anymore, but I still worry that the people that live there, you know, how are they going to pay for all of this? And, you know, with all these other crazy things that they want to propose, you know, I, to me, it's protecting life is more important than giving clean water to people is important. I mean, those are the things that, 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 that make a place to live, a nice place to live. Uh, and I, I don't always see that that happening in places like that, or Jackson, Mississippi, or Michigan, and other places like that. They seem to put the priorities in different spots. And, and again, they got to get money from somewhere, it's, and they get them from people like us, uh, to, you know, taxpayers and things like that. But there's got to be other ways to to generate some dollars, and or use it, or use the spend more wisely on what they what they go after. But that's just yeah. Me. And, you know, there's there's always that discussion, you know, in the government um, as to what to do and how to spend the money. And, you know, California is a big, a big, big place. And yep. if we were a, our own country, we'd be fifth or sixth or seventh. I don't know. They give a number. It changes. But it's always way up there. But that's how big our economy would be. We have, a, a, you know couple billion people no i don't know how many no 34 million people i think is yeah is i think the last population of california and we have this huge state you know california is bigger one of the larger states in the union if we were the size of say connecticut or rhode island then managing our water would be really easy um but we're not you know and we have a, a wide state. It's very diverse in, in all all manner of speaking, precipitation, demographics, economies. Uh, you know, just even the biomes that we live in. There's, you know, they're they're all. It's different from one end of the state to the other, and we hear it all the time in government. But it's very true. It's one size can't fit all. It really can't in in California. We're just too diverse, but that means that makes it hard to figure out what to do. That's true. Any other breaking news in water up in Sacramento or anywhere? Oh, there's always breaking news. <laughs> always breaking news, and then a lot of discussion over you know, did we save rainwater? Or rainwater, you know, going out to sea, and and I I don't know. We're, we're, you know, we're doing the best we can to save the rainwater when it comes. Uh, storm, you know, we I know that we've made a lot of progress on that for groundwater. There's a lot of GSAs, groundwater agencies out there this year that are trying to capture that groundwater to improve their their groundwater levels and their depleted aquifers. 
Um, and, you know, I do think that the state is really trying to capture all that water to the best they can, but it really is means a big change in our water system, and making those changes is really very, very difficult. Like, our reservoirs are all set up to capture melting snow in the mountains. We don't have a lot of reservoirs on the valley floor. There's, you know, not a lot of spaces on a big, flat valley floor to store water. So, uh, so you know, we have a lot of rain that falls below the reservoirs, so we can't capture that in the reservoirs if it's, you know, the reservoirs are more ready for snow. So trying to figure out how to capture that rainwater is, you know, is, is challenging. And you have to have the right piece of land. Uh, the, you know, you just can't point to a piece of unused land and say, hey, let's put water there and let it inf- infiltrate into the aquifer. It may not make it. It depends on the geology of that area. So, right. you know, it's tough. And then L.A., you know, we're, we're trying to save more stormwater in L.A., but, you know, it's it's built up uh, all over the place, and land is expensive and hard to find. And, again, you have to have the right piece of land. It's not always, you know, it's not always easy. So we're doing the best we can. Can we do better? Sure. And are we working towards that? Absolutely. But we're not there yet. Yeah. No, that's that's true. Well, I hope it gets better. I hope I hope all the plans that they talked about over the last couple of years, I hope they start implementing and finding the money. And like I said, and it's not just California, it's all over the country. As long as they spend the money wisely that they're getting in taxes and what the government hands out to, to help make improvement over all of these things with the contaminated water and algae blooms and, you know, the aquifers and the dams and things, we... We, and the broken broken infrastructure of pipes and things that needs to be all replaced and and, and, and it takes money unfortunately uh, to fix it so uh, it's a big job that not only California has but all but all over the country it's every 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 state is seeing that well when you sure. say it that way Rob it makes it difficult <laughs> well but that's the truth I mean you got you got to look at it that way you can't sure I, 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 I as I've always said, you can't do everything. Everybody puts a wish list together. You know, and there's probably 50 or no, more than that. There's probably a couple hundred things that need to be done in the state of California. And you can't do them all. You can do them partly, but you can't put all the money into one one or two or three things when you got 200 things you got to fix. It's, it's, it's not an easy chore. And I, I understand that. But, but these things are, are going to occur. Uh, of, of, of damaging uh, levees and aging equipment, um, we need to be thinking what's what's important to continuing the growth and the lives of all our people here. And uh, so somebody's got to set a priority list. Anyway, that's that's my thoughts. Good, better, and different. <laughs> all right. So, Chris, anything else new? No, good from my end, buddy. I think uh, we're ready to let Chris go for the evening and. And uh, talk to you next week. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. But, but before she goes, our listeners, please go to mavensnotebook.com. Become a subscriber. Become a sponsor. It's a great way to get uh, your, your daily news on what's really happening in water. And she goes into way more depth, depth than we're talking about right now of what we talk on our show. I mean, she's got pages and pages every single day 
of updated news and things that uh, that's going around the state. So give it give it a try. It's mavensnotebook.com. It's it's a great read and, and you'll enjoy that and you become very much informed. So Chris, thank you very much, and we will talk to you next next week. All right. Good evening, everyone. Have a great week, Chris. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be back with our, our featured guest. So stick around. It's going to be a great conversation with a, uh, a unique gentleman and a unique company, unique technology. So we'll be back in just two minutes. KCAA Loma Linda. Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM. Moving up in this industry means getting the most out of each day so you can focus on growing your business. With Site One, you're in control and we're here to help. It starts with the right team. Our irrigation pros can help map out a complete streamlined system to meet any requirements or regulations. And from the first dig to years after install, knowledgeable experts are available in branch or resources are available online to help find solutions specific to your needs. Next, we make sure you have the right tools to get the job done with the largest selection of top brands in the industry, bringing the latest in Wi-Fi enabled controllers, rotors, sprays, valves, and drip components. And because hard work should always be rewarded, you'll receive personalized pricing and earn loyalty points on qualifying purchases to help you grow. You're in control. Site One is here to help. Water is one of the biggest expenses for communities, HOAs, universities, golf courses, and resorts. So keeping those costs under control, especially when rates are increasing while water supplies are being reduced, are often essential to a customer's survival. Managing water requires multiple skills, which is why it's been complicated and difficult until now. AquaTrack brings multiple skills and technologies together to help large system users conserve outdoor water and improve the health of their landscapes. AquaTrack's professionals are certified landscape water managers and certified landscape irrigation auditors. The company offers audit services, upgrade advice, technical expertise, and water use monitoring. We already manage irrigation water for the largest homeowner associations in Arizona, and we're prepared to bring our knowledge and experience to help others, including landscapers and designers. Give us a call and hear how AquaTrack saved one HOA some 430 million gallons of water and $200,000 in annual water expenses. AquaTrack is Arizona-based, and you can reach us at 623-594-8689. That's 623-594-8689. This is KCAA. Today on the Water Zone Radio Show, welcome back. I'm your host, Chris Davey, along with the all-knowing and all-conscious Rob Starr. So, listen, guys, we have just an uh, awesome guest today with us. And Rob is correct for that when he said right as we were going to the break. I think this second half here is going to be especially appealing, I think, anyway, to our more sciencey listeners, right, those interested in science and technology. I'm going to let Rob introduce the guest here in just a minute, but let me tell you just a couple of things about the company. The company's name is Molaire. 
It's uh, a leading nanobubble technology company. It's got over 2,000 nanobubble generator installations already going in 42 countries. It's deploying this unique power of nanobubbles, enhancing and improving the performance and productivity of some of the most critical industrial processes. It unlocks the power of water to help farmers grow more food, uh, empowers businesses to manage their water needs more effectively and efficiently, very important to Rob and I, and also restore aquatic ecosystem sustainability without the use of chemicals. Rob, why don't you tell them more? I will, and just so our, our listeners uh, understand, we're not mm. talking about bubbles that go in a jacuzzi. Uh, this is a pretty neat technology, <laughs> and as a science person, I'm really, I really like this kind of stuff. So let me tell you, nanobubbles, they're 2,500 times smaller than a grain of salt, and they allow scarce resource of water to do more with less. They supersaturate water with oxygen. They form natural oxidants for disinfection. Uh, improve plant health and increase water's ability to permeate soil and rock. Ammonair's patented nanobubble technology provides the highest oxygen transfer rate in the aeration and gas infusion industry with an efficiency of more than 85% per foot of water. So with all of that, and most of you don't understand what all that is, we're going to get somebody <laughs> who does. And it's the, uh, I want to introduce our, our featured guest. His name is Nick Diner, and he is the CEO of Moliere. So, uh, Nick, welcome to the Water Zone. We appreciate you coming on. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Chris. And really appreciate the introduction. Uh, very uh, helpful and, and very kind. Thank you. Uh, so we like to always start off the conversation is, how did the company come about? And, uh, you know, we always we always ask people, you know, what, why did they choose the career they did? In the, but I want to pick your brain on, how did this company come about and, and the technology that was born from it? Yeah, no, you bet. Thanks for asking. So uh, I did not found Moliere. I, I was fortunate enough a few weeks after uh, our co-founders uh, found them all year to have met them, and this was back in 2016. Um, our co-founders are still with us. Uh, one is Bruce Shulton, he's our CTO, and the other is Warren Russell, our chief commercial officer. And at the time, back in 2016, Warren was focused in wastewater treatment, offering microbiology uh, that's designed to be uh, you know, delivered to a wastewater treatment plant to break down organics and, and the sludge, and to make those bugs you know, basically uh, flourish to live, you need to create, you add air, you need to create an aerobic environment. And he was looking for a way to deliver oxygen more efficiently in a very shallow body of water, in a temporary wastewater treatment plant in Abu Dhabi, in the Middle East. So you've got shallow water, high temperature. And traditional aeration systems uh, perform better when you have deeper water, so the bubbles have a longer time to rise as they dissolve. And generally speaking, when the water is cooler, it can handle, hold more oxygen. That's physics, that's Henry's law. So he had this you know, unique challenge of, uh, trying to maintain an oxygen level that allow his bugs to do their job, uh, but in a very difficult environment to maintain uh, an aerobic condition. So he worked with Bruce to figure out how can they make a device or technology that would make incredibly small bubbles, knowing that there was some literature out there coming out of Japan that if you could produce bubbles down in a sort of nanoscale, they lack the buoyancy to come to the surface, so they're going to stay in that body of water, and you're going to get better transfer efficiency, and he'll get the oxygen that he needed. Bruce is a, a classic inventor, um, uh, just a, an incredibly creative engineer uh, who started to play with different ways to dissolve gas into liquid, uh, came up with this concept. They did their some own testing, saw some unique outcomes related to the way the bubbles were behaving, bubbles that you couldn't see, but the oxygen levels that were being measured would tell you there was something going on here. Uh, they filed some patents on it, sent the product out to 
to the Middle East to test it. And next thing you know, Warren is getting very high levels of oxygen in that really challenging environment. They ran another test, saw similar outcomes, decided they want to start a company. And I was very lucky to meet them uh, a few weeks after they got started to help them think about how to you know, raise money and build a business. And I got interested enough that myself and a few others invested in them. And I joined them shortly thereafter to help grow the business. So we are now entering year six in that journey. Wow. Uh, Nick, congratulations, man. That's a great story, I can tell you. And the, you told us a little bit of, yeah, you told us a little bit about uh, about you know the science behind it, right? But this this technology is, is fairly new, right? Showing a lot of promise, but it's very very yeah. new. So let me just take a little forward looking view of what makes this technology so adaptable to to all these industries that I was relating to in the uh, in the introduction. Um, you know, and, and how does it affect the water process, right? I mean, just kind of, yeah. kind of get more into the weeds. No, you bet. And that, and this is, and that is where this, the Moliere story and the nanobubble story gets really excited. So as I was saying, we started as a wastewater company thinking we had this really efficient way to dissolve gas into liquid. What we now know is that these nanobubbles, these hundred nanometer sized gas particles, and Rob, you described it, right? You know, 2,500 times smaller than a grain of salt. I like to tell people because we're all now experts in viruses that it's about the size of a virus. And so at that scale, when you produce a gas particle or a gas bubble, it behaves so differently than any other bubble that normally gets injected when gas, when uh, gets formed when gas is injected and starts to rise and gets to the surface and pops. So what we started to look at a year after we started the company is what can you do with these tiny bubbles and this highly efficient oxygenation or gas transfer technology? And interestingly enough, wastewater is actually not the primary business of Moliere. Agriculture is. And what we start to learn is, okay, these bubbles now at this size, they don't leave the body of water. They actually don't dissolve because of the, the, basically the surface tension of all the molecules that are forming around the bubble that small is so great that they don't uh, have that natural dissolution of oxygen to water. They have a very strong charge, so they want to react with something. And so we start to think about, okay, what do we do with these properties? They, the, the, there's an oxidation around these bubbles, almost like a very mild form of peroxide. Uh, they don't dissolve, so it's almost like a very small hard particle, so you can you know, scour things off of surfaces with them. Uh, we looked at how the nanobubbles actually loosen water molecules so they lower the surface tension of water, so water's going to flow more easily into soil or into a, an oil well formation or into a heap, because we do work in oil and gas and mining as well. And so we start to think about how these bubbles play a role in changing the behavior of water and improving water quality and improving the, the surfaces by which that water is flowing through and then start to identify industries where that could be impactful. And obviously irrigation is, you know, agriculture consumes 78% of the world's water, depending on where you are. There's you know, trip irrigation and pressurized irrigation is a, a huge opportunity where we can try to deliver the, the technology and the value of it to, to growers. Um, and so we start to, start to look at that very carefully in 2018. How can highly oxygenated water with enormous concentration of nanobubbles, these are hundreds of millions of bubbles per milliliter of water, right? so it's an enormous number of these bubbles being formed, create value. And what we started to see is all of those different scientific attributes I described turn into things like uh, uh, growers seeing better salt being flushed out, salt accumulation being rinsed, they're flushed out of the soils more effectively, especially in compact soils where it's difficult to get water to flow through, and that's due to the, the, the benefit is due to the surface tension reduction of the bubble. We're seeing how highly oxygenated water improves root development, root mass, which is why so much of our business today is in that controlled environmental ag, you know, high-tech greenhouses, low-tech greenhouses, vertical farms. We see how the bubbles are starting to reduce biofilm on surfaces. So, you know, every grower has their own unique challenge. And, and you know, as, as your customers know better than I do, in, in that in the agriculture industry, 
it's the multivariate equation, right? So they're always trying to figure out all the different things they have to control. And we're trying to see how can we help apply this technology to solve that, similarly in water treatment, similarly in wastewater treatment, and, and so on. I, I do want to ask a question, and I'll come back to the agriculture yeah. portion. So a lot, of, a lot of companies who produce, well, I said produce, they bottle water, and mm-hmm. they use it, and they claim it's sports-related and gives you this and that and that. There was a company, I don't re- recall the name of it, where they were promoting years ago oxygenated water that uh, is good for the body and good for sports. And is that something your product can be used for? It can be used for. We, we don't uh, focus on that uh, market. And, you know, it's kind of a joke that there's 44 million different applications for nanobubbles. There are a lot of applications for nanobubbles, right. even beyond water, uh, uh, traditional water uh, applications. We really look at as sort of a, a mission for the company is to help industries or customers use water more efficiently. And that's going to put you in either agriculture, industry, or municipal. And so when we start to look at things like bottled water, if somebody wanted to buy our system to use it for it, no problem. We would sell you the system. But as a market that we're proactively pursuing, it doesn't really fit in sort of some of the, the target applications that we focus on within that, that context of really helping uh, uh, industries use water more effectively. All right, going back to agriculture, I, I had asked that question because sure. I was curious. Can, can you, uh, uh, which crops benefit more from this nano uh, bubble technology? Yeah, so we don't, we're, we're, we actually are crop agnostic. For us, it's much more about the cultivation method and how cost effectively can a grower integrate our systems into their called irrigation process to be able to bet to, to uh, obtain the benefit. But to give you a little bit of history on that, you know, we started in, in the uh, agriculture space looking at very small greenhouses around 2018 because our systems were still much smaller back then, primarily focused in hydroponics and leafy green. Um, uh, hydroponics because obviously water is the medium by which the plants are growing in, and leafy greens because some of the challenges that we were uh, uh, hearing from growers in the leafy green space had a lot to do with the levels of oxygen, how that translates to root mass and root development. And you immediately see that when you can go from you know, a body of water with you know, three to seven parts per million of oxygen due to, uh, and it's limited by temperature, and then all of a sudden we're at the 15 to 20 parts per million in that same temperature, you see the roots change completely, right? You go from a very, you know, almost a dark-colored, uh, small root mass to very large, long, white, uh, white roots, much larger mass. That translates immediately to a better quality crop, most often higher yield. So we started there in the leafy green space. After that, we started to look at larger, uh, really, greenhouses. So it took us into tomatoes, peppers, and cucumbers. Regardless of how you grow it, similar outcomes. And now, as we've grown as a company, we're starting to look at those specialty crops and more of the outdoor space, right? So nut orchards, uh, vines, uh, cherries, berries, uh, primarily in, in Chile, Spain, and California. So we haven't really seen a crop specifically behave overly differently from another. Um, at the end of the day, what the technology is doing is improving water quality. And when you improve water quality and the infrastructure that is used to deliver that water and improve how water flows through that soil, yeah, that's always a good thing. So that's what we're ultimately delivering. How, how does it get generated into the ground? I mean, is it through regular irrigation plumbing, drip, uh, uh, drip? Any kind of yeah. methodology for delivering 
Yeah, so today we, we will deliver one of two ways. Our systems will be connected to like a source water. Source water, if it's in a small greenhouse, the tank. If it's at outdoors, it would be like an irrigation pond, right? Um, and in that case, we are recirculating that water through our system. And the way to picture our system is the core technology uh, almost looks like a pipe. And the diameter of that pipe is a function of how much water we're going to be treating. And inside that pipe, we are diffusing gas into flowing water through proprietary materials and proprietary geometry that creates the right environment for us to form these uh, 100 nanometer size bubbles in enormous concentrations and also in parallel dissolve whatever gas we're introducing, either air or oxygen, very efficiently. And that's really just being uh, cost effective. Um, The pump is going to recirculate that water through it. Some sort of gas, whether it's air or oxygen, is going to be delivered to it through a generator, which we provide as well in our system. And so it's very modular. If you already had a pump, and for whatever reason you already had an air compressor or an oxygen generator, you could buy from us just the technology itself with the right fittings and you integrate it. If you didn't have a pump, um, sorry, if you didn't, you had a pump but you didn't have the gas, on, you, we would be able to provide you the nanobubble generator plus the air or oxygen and you use your pump. And if you don't have any of that, you want us just to connect our system to an existing source water like, like an irrigation pond or a tank, we would then come in with the pipes and recirculate the water like an umbilical where we are just literally uh, treating as much of that water as we can before it gets delivered down to the, into the irrigation network. Most commonly, if it's outdoors, for our customer base today, it's some sort of pressurized drip irrigation system. Um, we also can, if there's no uh, you know, a body of water like, a, like an irrigation pump, we can go right off the discharge out of a pump, right? So if you have the water coming right off the well, maybe it goes through some filters to take out some particles, you can then run it right through our technology, connect the gas, the air oxygen to it, and then let it continue down the drip network <clears throat> into eventually the, uh, the the roots of the plant. Pretty interesting. Chris, I'll let you jump in, and I know you have some questions. Chris? No, nope, maybe we lost him. <laughs> I'm, the I I'm right here. I'm oh. right here, Rob. Sorry. I'm right here, Rob. Hey, uh, Nick, uh, let me ask you another yep. question here, because this is, you know, this I'm hanging on every word, man. This is so exciting. <laughs> And uh, just monitoring the chat here, lots of uh, lots of people asking questions. So let me ask, let me kind of pop, pop this one in, right? You describe your system, your nanobubble, nanobubble system as a nanobubble generator, and thanks for the great description uh, of of, um, of of how it works. But there's there's some there's a couple of other water quality treatment things out there, like magnetized water and all that stuff. And they say mm-hmm. that um, hey, you know, we're we're good for water treatment. We reduce scale deposits, et cetera, et cetera. We make the water more bioavailable, all that kind of stuff. Is there a comparison to what you're doing to some other technologies, or is yours singularly different? There, so it, 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 there's a comparison in depending on what type of problem you're trying to solve and how you want to go solve it. And then there are certain things that are, I think, uh, unique or singularly different. Um, so if you had to remove, you know, uh, waterborne disease, Diphtheria, Phytophthora, and others, there's, you know, there's chemical treatments you can use. Right, and you'll get rid of the yep. instead of using nanobubbles. If you had to remove biofilm from the irrigation line, you can, you know, once you're done with your your season, you can do another chemical treatment through that. If you had to uh, address some of the challenges of high levels of salt accumulation and poor water infiltration in the soil, you can go get microbials and sulfuric acid and gypsum and other inputs to try to address that. And if you just want to get oxygenated water, you don't care about anything else. You can buy oxygen and very inefficiently put that oxygen to water, and it might cost yeah. you a lot more oxygen, but you can get there. 
what our technology is really doing, what we're finding as it relates to the unique properties of nanobubbles and then combined with some of the advantages of how Moliere produces those to be able to dissolve oxygen parallel very efficiently, is we can solve many of those problems with one technology. And it is chemical-free, which I think people are starting to value more and more, not just from the economic perspective, but also from the, the benefits of not applying or utilizing these chemicals. So what we're doing is saying, look, we don't have, there's, there isn't a problem out there that cannot be solved by another means. That would be an unfair way and a biased sure. way to categorize us. But what we're trying to do is say, look, we can solve many of these problems with the unique attributes of this technology, and obviously we want to be able to do that more cost-effectively than anybody else. Otherwise, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Well, I appreciate that, Nick, answering a sure. uh, you know a listener chat question there. It was great for you to do that. But what about you know what about uh, we talked about irrigation and ag and all that kind of stuff. What about other applications? What other you know industries are out there that might benefit from nanobubble technology? Yeah, so I'll, I'll tell you where we're focused, and I'll tell you some of the cool things that are also happening that sometimes I wish we were focused on, but we can't do it all. So, you know, so we focus really in, in sort of four verticals, right? Irrigation is the biggest, and that's agriculture, 70% of the world's water, so that's naturally it's that, uh, a big market for us. We also work in aquaculture, and aquaculture today is primarily, you know, salmon farming and a bit in shrimp. So we do quite a bit of work in Norway and Chile and Western Canada. And right in, in that aspect, it's really all about trying to deliver oxygen more cost-effectively to those growers and also improve water quality, which very similar issues to what somebody's growing on soils facing when they're trying to grow fish out in, uh, in net beds and hatcheries and whatnot. We work in wastewater, um, which is where we got started, but we're still very active in that space. And that's really just about putting air nanobubbles to pre-treat the wastewater and improve the, the efficiency of the overall wastewater treatment process. So we're really doing retrofits and coming in there to try to optimize the treatment plant. And then we do quite a bit of work in the oil and gas mining space, trying to improve how uh, uh, companies are able to extract those minerals and also making sure that they're utilizing that water more efficiently in the process of doing so. We do work in some unique partnerships and other applications, but by primarily those are the four verticals we, we focus on. But there's some really neat stuff going on out there in the nanobubble sort of academic community, so to speak. There's uh, a professor who's studying the use of nanobubbles to improve contrast agents for ultrasound. So they can prove improved cancer detection ultrasound technology by putting nanobubbles into the contrast agent that ends up you know in your body that makes the image more <clears throat> uh, uh, noticeable for the for the ultrasound device and then in com combination with that looking at how the technology can be used to improve things like cancer treatment that's one area there's other areas about how nanobubbles improve uh, sort of the, the dispersions of things like fungicides and herbicides uh, for crop protection there's uh, uh, quite a bit of effort around looking at how nanobubbles can change the, the, the mouthfeel and the texture profiles, things like you know, milk and other dairy-based uh, products, or even, like you asked before, Rob, about drinks. So these are all areas that are being researched. It's, it's pretty fascinating. It, it's growing exponentially in, from, a, from an academic perspective. It's probably a 25-, 30-year-old class of science that first got started primarily out of Japan, and now it's really uh, taking off globally at the university level and starting to become more commercially available as well through, through us and through others. Uh, so if you take a look at the future, where, where do you see nanobubble technology 10 to 15 years down the line, and what will be the impact of this exciting technology? Because it's, it's, I, I, to me it sounds like it's in the infant stage, but it's been around for a while, and with all the things that that, that you had mentioned what this thing can help contribute to improving water and and stuff with the treatment treat, treating water and things of that sort to cancer that's, that's pretty unique it is yeah it is truly really a new class of science that way right you've got 
gas particles, basically. That's what you're forming. They're not really bubbles, even though by definition they are. And if I was to use a baseball analogy to build off of, you know, where we are in its infancy, I think we're still in the first inning of a nine-inning baseball game. Um, it will be, you know, 10, 15, 20 years from now. I don't know exactly how long it'll take for obvious reasons, but I believe it will be a, a an input, let's say, or an ingredient in a wide variety of applications where it's creating significant value. From a Moliere perspective, because we, we are mission-driven, and we are, at the end of the day, focused on primarily water. We want to see... Uh, uh, water being utilized more effectively. So if it's a 5% reduction in water consumption, a 3% reduction in water consumption, I don't know. But I do know this. If we can help, for example, growers grow more food without increasing or using more water, potentially growing the same amount of food using less water, or ultimately getting both more food and less water, the impact we make is enormous. Right? I mean, I was looking up recently how much water is California using for irrigation, right? It's 11 trillion gallons of water per year goes to irrigating the 9.6 million acres in California alone. If we can bring that down just a few percentage points, that is enormous impact when we all know that, you know, fresh water is becoming more and more scarce. And it's a major challenge for the world going forward. So for us, at the end of the day, yes, nanolevels have a potentially have the ability to have enormous impact across a wide variety of industries. But right now, that's what we're focused on. How do we help that industry use water more efficiently? Have you gotten involved with what's called vertical farming, where they take a, uh, a gigantic warehouse and convert it into a, a farm internally, where they yeah. use simulated lights? And how, how does that play with, uh, you know, because they don't use a lot of pesticides or anything else. But again, you, you're probably looking to help increase the yield of the that's crops. Right. So. That's right. Exactly. It. Yeah. In those environments, especially because they're so controlled. Um, you know, our technology is, is, is adopted pretty rapidly, which is great to see. And, and ultimately, we're doing exactly just that, right? They're aiming for yield improvement. So what are the things they can do to that water quality, to that water, bring it to the root that's going to translate ultimately to higher yield? Um, certain crops that are grown in, in vertical farms do respond very, very well to highly oxygenated nanobubble water. And so in that case, those customers get you know, paybacks, return on investment very quickly. But one of the things that's most interesting on the, on the feedback we get from a number of growers in that segment is at the end of the day, our technology gives them peace of mind. The one thing that they do know from using our product to deliver oxygen nanobubbles to the root zone of those plants is that when, when there's a mistake that happens in the growing process, crops that are exposed to oxygen nanobubbles uh, uh, respond better to that mistake. So whereas you know, something from heat stress or disease or other challenges that would affect the crop output, crops that have been irrigated with our water or water using our technology respond better or, or manage through that challenge more effectively or efficiently. And it's interesting to hear that. It's not always about dollars and cents, but that peace of mind is what many people are buying our product for. Well, have you, uh, without telling any secrets, I, I know like in Israel, for example, they have a lot of salinity in, in the water uh, for crops and things, and they're working with uh, biologists to see if they can re-engineer the, the vegetables, for example, to be able yeah. to grow better with that. Is that something that your technology can can maybe work with that kind of uh, pathway of trying to help uh, clean up some of the, the salts in, 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 in the water? I didn't know that about Israel, but as soon as we hang up, I'm going to be emailing our sales uh, manager in Israel about that opportunity. Because one of the things that we're very focused on in California is that problem. How does, oh. how does uh, nanobubble irrigated water 
flow through or flush that soil more effectively to get that salt accumulation out. And we have really good data. It's actually done with Maricopa Orchard in the Central Valley. And they ran it through, I think, three different seasons to really test it and then ultimately look at the economic benefit of uh, applying our technology side by side to see how that salt accumulation gets flushed out. And the results are really positive. Um, they did a whole write-up that's actually available uh, through one of the journals. But uh, that's exactly one of the value propositions we're looking at right now. And without even adding any air or oxygen to the water, purely just nanobubble water, how does that improve soil infiltration? Yeah, that's, you know, I have had a bump into your, your, your booth at the uh, IA show. I, I was uh, yeah, very much interested in that. Yeah. I mean, I'm, 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 a, I'm an engineer, electronics and physics, but I love, I'm really into what you guys do and, and that kind of technology. It, 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 uh, it's exciting to me. I, I dabble in other things that uh, are similar, but not, not, not to the extent that you do with what you're doing. But I'm, I'm glad you took the time to come on the show. And uh, how can people find out more about your company? Is there a website that they can go to or... Yeah, and there's always the best way. And the website is Moliere, M-O-L-E-A-E-R. It's, it's based off molecular air, right? So make a tiny, tiny bubble, tiny air. So right. M-O-L-E-A-E-R.com. Clever name. Any upcoming trade shows that you guys are going to be showing at? <laughs> I know we're at Indoor AgCon. I know we're going to be at Cultivate. We have a uh, few irrigation shows in Europe we'll be at. Um, and then uh, I know we're at the irrigation show last year. We, we ran into each other. I'm sure we'll be there again this year. Good, good. Uh, no, thank you again for coming on. I was excited. Chris and I were excited when uh, I came back to the booth. I, I, uh, I had to leave early uh, at the show uh, for personal reasons, but uh, uh, I'm very, very glad we had a chance to uh, uh, stop by your booth and, uh, and learn a little bit more about what, what you had. And we do appreciate you coming on the show. And uh, anytime you want to come back and talk about some new things that you're working on, we'd be glad to have you. Uh, it was great to be on, and really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, guys, and, and, and fun to talk to you guys. Great. Thank you, Nick. You have a great week. Thanks. You too. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Chris, I was pretty excited about that. I was. It was great. You know, listening to some of the some of the listener chat here. A lot of people want to know how it works, right? I mean, you know, oh, so we course. didn't have a chance to get into the into the nitty gritty, but uh, maybe next time. Well, they can go find the patents and read it. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, but yeah, interesting. But anyway, right. uh, thanks, thanks to our audience for listening in. we got some great guests coming up next week. And the most important thing that Chris and I want to tell you you must do this week is please help keep our planet awesome. blue. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everybody. Have a great week. KCAA Loma Linda. The Legacy KCAA 1050 AM and Express 106.5 FM.